Great. Thank you very much, Rob. Keep that open, and we're going to look at that together. Let's pray, though, before we do that. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We think of those words again in our verse of the year, that it's to hear your words and put them into practice that enables us to build our lives upon you, the rock. So may we hear and learn tonight how to put into practice what you've said in Jesus' name. Amen. I was at a social event recently um, talking to a, a retired, quite eminent scientist, and uh, he was interested when he found out what I do for a living, because he said, well, I, I'm an atheist. I don't believe any of that stuff. Um, I don't believe in God, but, but actually, I, I do think if only we put into practice what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, then the world will be a much better place. And that's a very common view. This sermon is seen by lots of people, the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus, as the ultimate guidance on how to build a better world through us all just loving each other. Isn't that what the sermon's about, we think? And, of course, there's a point in that, but there's a problem with seeing Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, even when he says things like, it was said, don't murder, but I say, don't even hate your brother. There's a problem with seeing that it's simply about our horizontal relationships. Because it doesn't notice, and Jesus keeps bringing us back to this fact, but there's a vertical dimension to the Sermon on the Mount, to Jesus' teaching here. Us and God, not just a horizontal one, us and others. You can't, you might say, truly love others without first and also loving God. Jesus starts our reading tonight with that little challenge, a little phrase there about how we do our acts of righteousness. See that in verse 1 there? Be careful how you do your acts of righteousness. He means by that religious activities. He'll talk about three examples in a second about praying and giving. You see, it's been fashionable in some churches to think that being a Christian is all about our relationship with God, for instance. People say, oh, we're not religious. That religious rituals are for the dead and living Christians, we we just love God. But actually, Jesus here is talking about, isn't he, what we might call religious practices, acts of righteousness, prayer and, and giving and so on. And he's saying that just as our relationship with God is the vertical matters as much as more than the horizontal in our love. Our love for God matters even more than our love for neighbor. So within our love for God, acts of righteousness matter too. It's part of how we demonstrate our love for God. So the Sermon on the Mount is about the vertical as well as the horizontal. It's also about, you might say, that the very practical act of righteousness as well as the relational acts of love towards others. So, tonight, Jesus is going to show us, he's going to warn us, if you like, he's going to show us the danger of fake righteousness, doing this stuff the wrong way, but also uh, the wonderful thing of, of true righteousness, how to practice true, real righteousness. We're going to see a warning first about the dangers, and then an invitation from Jesus to engage with, to fulfill the desires of real righteousness. We'll see what I mean by those when we get to them. So first of all, 
the dangers of fake acts of righteousness. That's the first verses, 1 to 8, and then he comes back again on the same theme in 16 to 18, the last little chunk as well. The dangers of false righteousness, fake righteousness. In verse 1, Jesus talks about three examples, doesn't he? The only examples, there were three key practices in the Jewish faith of Jesus' day. Giving and prayer and fasting. He could have picked other ones as well. He might do today. And he warns about doing these things, not doing them full stop, but doing these things, as he says, in public to be seen by others. The motive to impress other people by what we do in public. The real problem is not doing these things, it's doing them to be seen by others, to show off. And in each of the three examples, giving, prayer, fasting, he gives an example of of what he means. He describes the problem. He then explains what the real root problem, the disease behind that behavior is. Where does fake righteousness come from? And then he points to some remedies, two remedies. Okay, so three examples One root cause, disease, if you like, and two remedies he gives us. So we're going to get more positive, don't worry. But first of all, the three examples. Again, this is is fantastic teaching here from Jesus. Uh, Three little caricatures. He says, first of all, verse 2, when you give, don't announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets. Imagine it. Uh, Time comes to church. Uh, you know, 6.30 Sunday evening, the rich businessman gets into his Jaguar with his bulging wallet. Uh, a social, social media message goes out that a big donation is about to come into Holy Trinity. Everyone knows about it. The poor are about to be blessed. The press are invited to come and take a picture of, of him handing the big fat check over. That's trumpeting your giving. That's giving, isn't it? But using my gift, using my money to buy the admiration of the poor, not to please God. So Jesus says, doesn't he, that man, he has received his reward in full. That's it. That's all he's going to get. In other words, he's not pleased God. Second example is prayer. Verse 5, similar theme. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in synagogues and on street corners to be seen by others. So you can see this guy, can't you? He heads to the prayer meeting, uh, but he's so eager to pray that he gets out of his car in the car park and he starts praying, standing there, right there in public. Just make sure that people are walking by to see him first. Then he comes into the prayer meeting and as soon as he gets a chance, he stands up in the middle and loudly prays a very long prayer so that everyone's impressed with what a skillful prayer he is. Fake prayer, you see, likes to be heard by others. Also likes to talk a lot. Verse 7 warns, Jesus says, when you pray, don't keep babbling on like the pagans do. For they think they'll be rewarded for their many words. Now the problem's not using words when you pray. I trust you're kind of clear on that, but just to be really clear... It's not the problem with using words when we pray or verbalizing them. The Bible's full of prayers with words, including the one we'll look at in a second. But the problem is either being repetitive, 
thinking that the more times I say it, the more likely that God might be impressed or someone might be. Or it's being inattentive, thinking that the fact that my lips are moving, even my mind's not even engaging with what I'm saying, is what counts. Don't be repetitive, don't be inattentive, Jesus says, like the pagans. Then the third example, the third caricature of fake righteousness, verse 16. When you fast, don't look somber. In other words, you know, sad, grim, as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. So you can imagine this guy, can't you? Um, he tears his designer, designer shirt to show how sorry he is for his sins. He, he smears sit on his face. Um, he puts out a message on social media that he's giving up social media for Lent. Kind of virtue signaling self-sacrifice. And again, it's to be seen by others. In every case, every example, Jesus is making it clear, these forms of fake righteousness are not just foolish, they're dangerous. Because he says... That person, they've received their reward in full. He's saying, some people are impressed by them. That's all they're going to get for what they've done. They've not pleased God either in this life, let alone for eternity. What really matters. So I heard about a, a very impressive, shiny uh, sailing yacht that capsized it was about 20 years ago, and, and the life of its famous sailor on board was lost it looked great above the surface but when they found the boat upside down in the ocean they rescued it uh, they found what had happened in the storm was that the the four ton weight that was underneath the keel holding it stable in the storm had for some reason shorn away and dropped off so it looked great above the surface but underneath nothing tragic dangerous So that's the the three examples. Now we come to the one disease, the one root problem that unites them all. Fake righteousness. Jesus calls each of these people, doesn't he, hypocrites. Hypocrites. And we use this word today. Um, It's actually a word taken from the world of ancient theatre. It shows that each of these fake righteousness, it is about play acting. Acting out a part that's false. In Greek plays, there was a chorus, and the hypocrite would be the the individual that would play to, would respond to the chorus, playing to the gallery, if you like, just as these people Jesus describes are doing, to be seen by others. A hypocrite, you see, is putting on the mask of loving God in their acts of righteousness, but actually underneath, all they love is the praise of others that they want. And this kind of hypocrisy, even if you and I are honest, if we call ourselves a follower of Christ, it's very easy to hide it, to get away with it, at least with others, but very difficult to deal with it. Very subtle. Very powerful human urge. So someone praises my Bible study, or the way I led the prayers, and I modestly might say, of course it's it's all about the, the glory of God. But underneath... That praise was what I was really looking for. 
So that's the root disease. That hypocrisy, that desire to be praised by others, not primarily to love God in my acts. So what are the two remedies Jesus gives for this very powerful urge, this disease in my heart? Here's the first remedy he gives. It's to make my act of righteousness, when I pray, when I give, as private as I can. Okay, make, make what I do as private as I can. He's not saying never pray out loud with other people present, but be as private as you can. So when you give, he says in verse 3, giving money, very relevant thinking about Commitment Sunday, he says, don't let your right hand know what your left is doing. Well, that's quite hard, actually, isn't it? You know, that's not how the human body works. He's exaggerating. But he's saying, isn't he, when you give, it's almost as if your mind shouldn't even know you've done it. That's how secretive you're to be with your giving. Don't tell yourself, in case you self-congratulate, I guess. Never mind, don't tell someone else. When you pray, he says, verse 6, go into your room, close the door and pray to the unseen divine audience, the one that matters, to your heavenly Father who hears you. That's what matters. Verse 7, when you fast, put on a new shirt, get a haircut, splash on the perfume. Give people no way of knowing that you're actually in a time of repentance for your sin and prayer. Os Guinness said that real character is who we are when no one sees us but God. That's the cure for hypocrisy, isn't it? Do these things when no one sees you. That's when they really count. Not simply when others are around. So, make your acts of righteousness as private as you can. Second remedy, start with the right motive. The right desire. The desire to be close to God, your Heavenly Father. To draw near to him, to direct your, your gaze to him, to put your focus on him, to please him. That's why he keeps talking in this passage all the way through about our Heavenly Father, doesn't he? Your Heavenly Father. Make pleasing him, drawing close to him, giving him your desire and your focus. Make that your goal, and the other things will flow. That's the motive that matters. Then he says, your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward. He says it three times. you see that? Halfway through verse 4, verse 6, verse 18. Then your father, who sees what's done in secret, not before others, in secret, will reward you. That motive, you see, it's not that I do these things so that I'll earn a reward, a place in heaven, as it were. He's not saying that, is he, here? He's saying not that we do these things to earn a reward, but that love for the Father, when that motivates me, it produces real righteousness, real acts of righteousness from the heart that are pleasing to God. So, summing up, what we've seen about the dangers of fake righteousness. Let's put it positively now. Praying, and also giving and fasting, and other acts of righteousness, are to be seen and to be done without show. They are to be directed to the Father primarily, and not to others. They are to be more private than public, and they are to be without the delusion that the more I do them, 
the more pleased God will be. Does that make sense? Without show, to the Father, private, and without the delusion, the more I do them, the more pleased God is with me. What Jesus then does uh, in the heart, really, of this passage tonight is he applies those principles and that warning to the most important part of our relationship with God, the heart of what it means to approach God as our Heavenly Father, prayer. And it gives us in verses 9 to 15 what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's really just the great model prayer that he's given us. We've only tonight just got a few minutes to look at this. Uh, we could spend many sermons on this, uh, on this prayer. But we're just going to have a very brief walk through it now. Because this gives us, as it were, the positive here. If that was the danger, here's the, the desires, the two desires we're going to see of real righteousness. As Jesus' prayer shows them to us. The desires of real righteousness. Let's just start by noticing who Jesus says we pray to. Our Father in heaven, verse 9. Many people emphasize the intimacy of that call to see God and approach God as our Father. And that's right. Uh, it, is, it was an unusual way to approach God for Jewish people in Jesus' day, as simply as Father. But remember this also. He's our Father in heaven. It's almost as if he's saying... It's only when I remember that the God I pray to, I'm entering the presence of the awesome, majestic God on high, who is a consuming fire. That's when the wonder of the intimacy that I can call him Father really comes home. So, intimate and awesome all at once. What then do we pray? What's Jesus' model of what we pray when we come to this Heavenly Father? Martin Luther called this, this Lord's Prayer, these few verses, the greatest prayer in the Bible. And, and he was someone that absolutely loved the Psalms, many of which are also prayers. It's quite a statement, the greatest prayer in the Bible. In English, they're just 52 words. But they're so beautifully worded, and they're set so elegantly in six, as we're going to see, six short prayers, that we can see, can't we? Jesus is a master of prayer. I've said there are six prayers. The six fall into two groups of three, as we're going to see. The first three prayers, here's our kind of take home tonight. The first three seek God's glory. That's the first desire of true righteousness, is the glory of God. God's glory. The second three then seek God's grace. That's the second of the two desires. God's glory, God's grace. In six prayers. So I'm just going to walk through those six prayers very quickly now. Here's the first three for God's glory. Hallowed be your name. Now when we pray this, we are praying that the power and purity of God may be shown in our lives and known also in our world. So it's a, it's a personal and a cosmic prayer at once. We're praying that lives that dishonor God may recognize his greatness and majesty. Cultures that disregard him at the moment may one day come to praise his glory. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, the second one. The kingdom of God is it's wherever Jesus' reign is recognized. So we're praying here that more people will hear about Jesus and respond through our witness to him. 
We're praying about the present there. But we're also praying that when Christ returns, his kingdom will fully be seen. His kingdom will truly come, that every person in every continent from Europe to Asia to Africa and beyond will bow the knee before Christ one day. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Again, we're praying for our own lives to be submissive to his will, both in our choices and in our circumstances, whatever they are. Your will be done. We're praying that his will will also be done, though, out there, in the community, in the city, in the nation that don't yet know him. Your will be done. We're praying that this week, aren't we, with the Brexit discussions going on. Martin Luther wrote a little book of advice about how to pray the Lord's Prayer. It's worth picking up. It's called A Simple Way to Pray, A Simple Way to Pray. Um, One of his bits of advice is this, as he teaches us to just spend a moment meditating on each line, spend a bit of time expanding it. So he expands, your will be done like this. He says, Lord, convert those who do not know your good will, that they may with us be joyfully, gladly and patiently bearing every evil and adversity and thereby prove your good and perfect will. So praying that others will come to faith and so submit to his will. Then he says, but defend us against those who in their rage and hate do us harm. So that's praying your will be done. All of those three together, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, they're all praying, aren't they, for God's glory in different ways. Because that's our first desire, our heart, our priority as Jesus' followers. But then in the second three, Jesus teaches us to desire his grace. And we come to, as it were, more mundane things, certainly more personal things for us. Three things again to pray. Prayers for God's grace now. Give us our daily bread. Now bread's easy for us to take for granted in our Western world today. Most of us don't necessarily worry where tomorrow's bread's going to come from. It's going to come from Tesco's. Uh, Some people, therefore, have spiritualized this prayer and made it more about praying for the great feasts in heaven that we look forward to when Christ returns. But actually, more likely, as it sounds, this prayer is reminding us to pray daily for our needs. It's almost like the, the father who... Very wisely, um, instead of giving his son half a million pounds as a lump sum when he's a very young man, gives him an allowance so that each day he comes back to keep that relationship between them strong rather than taking the money and never being seen again. God is teaching us through this prayer to depend upon him in faith for each day. Forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, the second of these three praying for God's grace. Sin against God is a debt that we owe, a debt we cannot pay ourselves, but a debt that Christ in his mercy and grace has paid for us on the cross. So Jesus says, pray this prayer because it reminds us daily that we need this forgiveness, but also it reminds us that we are called to forgive others as we have been forgiven. We need grace for both our forgiveness, and to forgive others that have hurt us. It's not that because I forgive someone else, God then forgives me. That's not the sense here. It's that 
the fact that God has forgiven me moves my heart if my righteousness is true and not fake to forgive others in response. Then the last one. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. These are really actually one prayer in two forms, two phrases. Uh, The sense is, the second leads to the first. Because God can deliver us from evil, he can therefore answer the prayer, lead us not into temptation. But I just wonder, simply on that one, how many of us really pray that prayer every day? We might pray for other things, but do we pray every day, Father, protect me today from the temptations that are going to come my way today. They come every day, don't they? That's my experience. I suspect it's yours. Do I really pray that prayer that Jesus told me to pray for his grace in temptation? So that's the great heart of of true righteousness, the great heart of prayer, of my relationship with the Heavenly Father, those two desires first for God's glory and then for his grace. And taken together, those prayers are a wonderful summary of the Christian life, of true righteousness, living for the Father's glory by his grace. So as I kind of wrap this up, here's two things I think that help us practically with this. First one is this. This pattern of those two desires, that my desire should be for his glory and his grace, they're a great pattern for the whole of my life, actually, aren't they? That principle that every day my desire is that his glory should come first and his grace should be what I trust in. That's a great remedy against being a Pharisee, for whom it's all about God as a slave driver and pleasing other people, looking impressive, but also actually against being like a a pagan, just babbling on without really trusting that God loves me and has grace for me. Great remedy for our spiritual heart. So how can you and how can I put God first at school this week or at uni in in my relationships or in my community, in my family? How can I have his glory and know his grace for all my needs this week as well. That's one to pray about, isn't it, as I go into this week. But to move to the really obvious point, this is a pattern for our prayers. Jesus means it to be a pattern. In a sense, the the 52 exact words don't matter so much as the, the six principles and the two big ones that hold them together, God's glory and God's grace. Martin Luther suggests that each day you might take maybe one of those lines. So start off tomorrow. Hallowed be your name. And just dwell on it. Rephrase it. Paraphrase it. Repeat it. Think of people and and places that you could pray that for. Lord, your, your name be hallowed at school this week. In my life today. In my family. In our nation. And so you can go through the six days, can't you, of the week, and you're through to Sunday again. So why not, rather than simply praying the prayer, it's very easy to pray it if you know it well, without almost thinking, but pausing. Praying a line at a time, or even a line each day this week. If you lead public prayers, we're going to pray together in a second, um, as one, in fact, two members of our church lead us. 
it's good, isn't it, if you lead public prayers to make those two great desires the heartbeat and often the pattern for our prayers together. Because as you lead us in prayer, focusing on the glory of God through our prayers and the grace of God in our prayers, you're teaching us all how to pray, aren't you? Just as Jesus does. Model those two desires and our prayers will become stronger and stronger. The difference between fake righteousness, where we started this night, uh, tonight, and real righteousness lies, doesn't it, actually in who we think God is. The hypocrite thinks God is a, a taskmaster and it's all about myself and my image. The heathen thinks of other things rather than even thinking of God himself at all. But when we pray, we know that God loves his children with tender affection. That he sees what we do in the secret place. That he knows our needs before we ask him. And he acts in grace for his children and for the glory of his coming kingdom. We trust in that. Let's pray for a moment now. A moment of quiet for us, perhaps to recognize with honesty how we can so easily be hypocrites if we call ourselves Christians, living for what others see. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, coming to you, wondering at your grace to us, that in our prayers and our giving, but also in our very lives, all of our acts, we may live more and more for your glory and pray more and more for your glory and live more and more by your grace and pray more and more for your grace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.